The Firebird is an ancient Russian legend or fairy tale which tells the story of a young prince, Ivan Sarvevich, who, with the help of the mysterious Firebird, sets free a flock of princesses who are held captive by an evil giant with green fingers, King Katschai. And at the end of the piece, our hero, Prince Ivan, marries the fairest of these princesses. And it was the great Russian aristocrat, patron of the arts, impresario, a man with an inveterately clever nose for new talent, Sergei Diaghilev, who came up with the idea of commissioning the then-unknown Igor Stravinsky to come up with a new ballet score based on this story. And it was duly first performed in Paris in 1910. Now you can imagine, Stravinsky must have been overjoyed by this commission, a great break for a young composer. But overjoyed, I think, particularly because it gave him the opportunity to prove himself the equal, if not even the superior to his teacher, Rimsky-Korsakov, to Tchaikovsky, and to that whole world of Russian romanticism out of which he was emerging. It's as if he's taking the orchestra apart, section by section, and analyzing it, lighting, if you like, the first great fuse underneath the instrumental makeup of the 19th century orchestra. Now, today we're not going to play the whole ballet. We're simply going to play a suite of music drawn from the ballet by Stravinsky himself in 1945. But in this suite, as in the original ballet, the arguments, the musical arguments, are rough-hewn, great squared sections, really powerful and raw, and with melodic materials drawn from the simplest means, often within the confines, say, of just a five-note scale. And as you'll hear in the beginning of the introduction that we'll play now, the theme in the lower strings is made up of a very narrow set of pitches, but it absolutely sums up a world of nocturnal magic and mystery, the world of the firebird. Now shortly, the trombones join us. And what we've decided to do with our performance is to put slight accents on each note that the trombones play. We'll play it, first of all, without the accents. They're just a very murky addition. Now, if you listen carefully, you'd have heard that the second note the trombones play is off the beat already giving a sense of Stravinsky the Rhythmatist, the slight sense of jive. So with the added accents, you get it even more clearly. Now something new, clarinets, bassoons and harp. I have to stop there just to let you know a rather scurrilous little story dating back from the first performance. Diaghilev, who, as I said, commissioned Stravinsky to write this piece, had this great idea that at this particular point in the score, the second half of bar eight, a procession of horses would come in, marching in time, which in itself is a fairly preposterous idea. Just play the second half of bar eight to get that sense. 
So you get that sense of horses walking in time. Goodness knows how they managed to achieve that. But the great point of the story, Stravinsky-related, was that at this point, one of the horses let out what Stravinsky called a malodorous calling card. Leave that to your imagination to work out what that might have been. Now, saying how Stravinsky was, apart from anything else, very, very excited about the idea of proving himself equal to, if not superior to, the composers that had come before him. And one of the first great orchestral effects he came across, he was obviously particularly excited with. It's a kind of glissando string harmonic. Okay, now let's add in the top part of the second violins. You're getting a sense of a sort of harmonic mist. And finally, let's add in the cellos, who are playing in groups of five, giving them actually eight beats to their bar, rather than the 12 that everyone else has. Now we get into the prelude and dance of the Firebird. This is the Firebird sort of establishing herself as a premium character in this story. Let's look at some of the ways that the harmony is put together. Very simple means, as I said earlier, but very odd combinations of different harmonies. That's adding the top part. Keep that going. You can hear one extraordinary glittering color and sense of sound that is. Let's add all the strings, just the bar of seven, slowly with no grace notes. Blocks of harmony, all sort of going against each other. Let's add the winds into that as well, from seven, play at tempo with grace notes. Now we get into the variations of the firebird. This is the point where Ivan, our hero, captures the firebird. And after a long sort of series of tussles, it's only subsequently that he agrees to let her go, provided she gives him one of her magic feathers that's going to be very useful to him later on. The interesting thing about this is that it's in 6-8, but with patches in 3-4. 6-8 meaning you've got six beats to the bar divided into two. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. But then in the next bar, you get what is essentially a 3-4 bar. Still six beats, but one and two and three and... So the stress of the beat pattern changes. Let's try just playing the violins and the violas. One, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Then if we add in the cellos underneath that, the cellos stay in six, eight. They don't get infected by the three, four. Finally, let's put it all together.
now we get on to what you might best describe as linking material. It's called pantomime, the first pantomime. Now, obviously, this isn't pantomime in the context of the Christmas show featuring faded stars from TV. This is a pantomime in its original meaning, which means like a dumb show. And it, in the purposes of the suite, it forms linking material to the next actual dramatic episode. into what's called the pas de deux, a dance for two. This is the dance between the firebird and Prince Ivan. Here they've obviously settled their differences. He's got the magic feather off the firebird and so they can maintain a healthy and happy relationship together. Listen particularly to the oboe theme here. As I was saying earlier, it's fashioned out of a very narrow set of pitches. It doesn't have a big sweep like you might expect from a Rimsky-Korsakov or Tchaikovsky, describing what is essentially a sense of love between these two characters. violins and bassoon has it. You hear also the gentle lilting flowing rhythm of that. So whilst the tune, in a way, is curiously cramped, the harmony that comes around it gives it an extra dimension. Now, we have a middle section to this pas de deux, which is a different kind of texture, as you will hear. First of all, though, it's worth exploring what the cellos and basses have. It's a type of playing called soltando, which means literally bouncing the bow on the string. Just try the cellos and basses alone. A kind of an energy, a sort of febrile energy to the sound. Let's add in the flute and horns here as well, please, at 26. how the horns are just embroidering that perky little tune that the flutes have. Let's now have everybody listen particularly to what the bassoon does to back up what the cellos and basses have and the harp who's in a world of her own. Finally, the slow music comes back again. 
the music which began this, the Paradeur, this extraordinary interchange between Ivan Sarvevich and the Firebird. We'll be sure he's agreed to free her now, and the magic feather is his. Just listen to what the second violins and violas add, which we didn't have before. Let's just hear the seconds and violas alone. Never a composer to just bring it back exactly as it was before. Let's put it all together. 31. Now we get on to another portion of transition music. This is the second pantomime sequence. Now, the scherzo, which is the first image or vision we get of that flock of princesses I described earlier. Ivan hasn't met them yet. This is almost in the form of a dream. It is, as I say, called a scherzo. Now, scherzo translated literally from the Italian means joke, which is curious because, in fact, this is a kind of an apparition of the 13 enchanted princesses, this flock of princesses I mentioned earlier, who Katschai has got captive under a spell. It's like a vision. We know that Ivan is not actually at Katschai's castle yet, but it's almost like he sees them in a dream, and a very jokey dream it is. Listen to these trumpets. Always adding more and more layers of colour. Now, listen very carefully to the clarinet theme which occurs here. It's a little bit further on in this scherzo. It's a foretaste of a theme that we'll hear very explicitly later on in what's known as the Infernal Dance. Now to the final transition bit in this suite from the Firebird, pantomime number three. And here you get another foretaste, in a way, of what role the horn, the solo horn, is going to have later on, really in the final section of the piece.
So out of that transition, we get into a rondo, Korovod. By this point, Ivan is definitely in the palace, and he is surrounded by the maidens, the princesses. Now, a rondo is literally a round dance. It derives from medieval songs sung by troubadours in which sections of words and music recurred in a kind of cyclical basis, in a cyclical nature, if you like. And the rondo idea then got borrowed and taken into the world of dance. So it is literally these princesses, these maidens, going around and around him. There are three themes which essentially occur or recur one after the other again and again. And the first, the very flowing and beautiful one, the two flutes in a cannon. That was the second theme in the oboe there, a real love theme, perhaps just the first sense of awakening love between Prince Ivan and the princess that he's going to end up marrying. This is a tune worthy, I think, of Tchaikovsky. Let's play it again, 70. And the cello takes it up. And the clarinet. And bassoon. And here's the third theme. Now, we get into some real choice Stravinsky. This is more the Stravinsky of the Rite of Spring we're about to hear now, the Infernal Dance. Now, taken strictly, the Russian title of this doesn't just mean infernal. It means raw, rough, brutish, ugly. This is where King Katshai, the evil giant with the green fingers, bursts upon the scene, realizes that Prince Ivan is here, and he's determined to do to him what he's done to any other wayfarer who's come along to his castle, which is to turn him to stone. So this is a huge, brutish struggle between the giant and the prince, the prince trying to avoid this petrification. This wouldn't be Stravinsky without some really choice use of the xylophone.
trombone. Now, you remember that clarinet tune from the scherzo dance of the princesses, the scherzo apparition that we heard earlier? Well, here it is in a fully-fledged form with much fatter, richer, and more unusual accompaniment. Well, we'll save up the rest of that brutish dance for our performance a little bit later on. What comes next is a bosseuse, in other words, a sleeping song. Ivan uses the magic feather the firebird had let him have earlier in order to summon her, in order to help him out. And she comes along and exercises her magic through singing this little song, sending everybody, in particular the giant, to sleep. that bassoon line, a really hot bassoon line. Stravinsky is surely the first composer to utilize the bassoon in quite this way. So the firebird has put everyone to sleep. Everyone that is, except our hero Ivan. He, in the meantime, has found the magic eggshell which contains Katschai's immortal soul. He breaks the eggshell and destroys the soul, thus bringing about the death of Katschai. And this is made graphic in the most delicate way, in a sort of chromatically falling string line with tremolando strings all playing incredibly fast simultaneously. And as you hear, it just slowly falls down and off as Katschai's wretched and miserable life fades away. The final hymn acts like a kind of an apotheosis to the whole piece. Katschai is dead, Ivan is now free to marry the most beautiful of the princesses, and there is general rejoicing. And this utterly beautiful horn theme, which begins it, and indeed then forms the basis for the whole final movement, is extraordinary not least because it's based just on five notes, five notes for scale, from F-sharp down to B. It gives a sense of a whole great structure built out of one chunk, in this case five notes, like one lump of rock. It is magical, and it does sound also resiliently Russian.
Well, let's look at the final incarnation of that great horn tune now, just towards the end of the final hymn. It has a kind of a quality and an energy about it here, which is very redolent of Russian church bells, which indeed is the mood of general rejoicing that we get in this final portion of the tale. It's interesting that of the three suites that Stravinsky drew from the original ballet, the one in 1911 and the one in 1919, it's only in the one of 1945, that's the one we're doing today, that he chooses to shorten the note values of this theme when it's heard at full speed. In the previous versions, the notes had been long. Now he makes them incredibly stabby, short, brassy, and bell-like, giving them a completely different quality. And we're also playing them at a true allegro non troppo, crotchet equals 208, or somewhere close to 208, much faster than most conductors play it. as they say, is history. Any questions from anyone about this piece or anything to do with Stravinsky? We know that Stravinsky's Rite of Spring produced a riot outside the theatre after its first performance. What sort of impact did this work have on the Parisian public and the musical world as a whole? Well, that's an interesting question. I dare say the Parisian public were somewhat amused by the malodorous calling card that I referred to earlier. Indeed, <laughs> After that had happened, Jagerlev decided not to have any more horses in the ballet. Apart from that, history doesn't relate, except that it was, I think, an overwhelming success. There was no fighting. Like I say, it wasn't scary enough or new enough to horrify people. But I think there was an enormous, tremendous sense of excitement and undercurrent that here was something that was going to take the world of music in a very new direction. Time for one more, I think. The Firebird was obviously one of Stravinsky's early works and written at a time when various 20th century styles were emerging, such as Impressionism, Expressionism and Neoclassicism. How would you categorize the Firebird and does that style remain consistent throughout Stravinsky's revisions of the work? I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, dealing with the revisions that he made of the work, he made his first suite of this ballet in 1911, then another one in 1919, and then the one that we're doing today in 1945 but they remained true to the ballet he'd written in 1910. They didn't get altered or developed over the course of Stravinsky's own development as a composer. Of course, in his life, his music fell into three categories. It was this early period, which is the Farberg and Petrushka, uh, which was very much still with its one foot, anyway, firmly planted in rich 19th century romantic soil. Then you get the middle period, which is pieces like the Rake's Progress, the Violin Concerto, Pulcinella, which are Stravinsky's neoclassical phase, which he got into in a major way, drawing on the great treasure chest of art of the past. Then his final phase was sort of like serial 
you know, the serial technique, which is something that Schoenberg pioneered in the early part of the 20th century, Stravinsky finally got into it himself. And so his later pieces, his last pieces, are much more acidic and acerbic in style. So all of that, in a way, was still to come. This is 1910, when Stravinsky was still in his 20s. He was really very much at the starting point, inheriting and starting to take forward a very rich tradition. Okay, well, without further ado, let us now perform for you the 1945 suite from The Firebird by Igor Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. 